Please note, this episode contains a couple descriptions of battles and wounds that may be unsuitable for some audiences. A small boat sailed silently through the choppy waters of a dark Manila Bay in early May 1942. Its passengers, evacuees of the beleaguered Corregidor Island, waited anxiously for a sign of their promised rescue. Were the months of hunger and war finally behind them? Would their rescuers be able to slip through the blockade of Japanese warships that was blocking the entrance to Manila Bay? Finally, at 7.35 p.m., they saw it, a recognition signal from a surfaced submarine. The small craft pulled alongside the submarine, and 25 passengers climbed aboard the USS Spearfish with their baggage, important files, and mail. In final testimony of the hell left behind, one of the passengers later remembered, the dark bulk of Corregidor suddenly blazed with fires and bursting shells. The Japs were starting to lay down a terrific, continuous barrage that was to mean the end of Corregidor. But the spearfish, still undetected by the enemy, and those few American evacuees were safe, at least from the bombs pummeling Corregidor. But could they evade the gauntlet of Japanese warships along the only route out of Manila Bay and searching for any sign of an American submarine trying to slip through? This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the United States surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather was a prisoner of war in the Philippines, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you, like me, believe it's important for people to hear this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Word of mouth is the number one way people find new podcasts, so by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. To start off things today, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard about flight nurses during World War II? Until researching this episode, I hadn't. And that's a shame because these women were awesome. Seriously, the things I'm constantly learning as I research for this podcast just continue to astound me. So flight nurses flew in the planes that brought supplies and sometimes men to the front lines. And they'd help load sick and injured men into those planes and then attend those men as they were flown to an American military hospital. So they were basically the evacuation helicopters of World War II. I'm sure you've seen in Vietnam or Korean movies, you have these helicopters bringing troops in and then they load on wounded men and the helicopter goes off. And right now, of course, I'm sitting here imagining the opening credits of MASH, but I will spare you my rendition of that theme song. Anyway, a flight nurse's job was so much more involved than what I've mentioned here. And I'm going to tell you all about it because today's episode is about one of those flight nurses. And I know you're probably wondering, Anastasia, how does a flight nurse fit in with the Baton and Corregidor story that you've been telling us for the last year? And you would be right to ask that because there weren't U.S. planes flying in and out of those locations at the beginning of the war. 
Well, the woman we're highlighting today was first a nurse on Bataan in a field hospital. Then she escaped from Corregidor on board a submarine. And that could have been a full episode in and of itself, because have you ever seen pictures of the interior of a World War II era submarine? I toured one at Pearl Harbor, and it was enough to trigger my claustrophobia while the hatch was open and we were above the water. I hardly want to imagine life with a closed hatch and submerged. And we'll get into all that. But back to this flight nurse. This woman escapes Corregidor, comes back to the United States in summer 1942, and the army tells her, guess what? You don't have to go overseas again during the war. You've served your duty. You're good. So she settles into nursing at a military hospital, and then she volunteers. She sought out this assignment to become a flight nurse on the front lines in the Pacific Theater. And the reason for that? Well, she was searching for someone. Let's jump in. Lucy Iris Wilson was born in Big Sandy, Texas on August 26, 1917. Big Sandy is a tiny town. Its population in 2020, so just a couple years ago, was 1,231. It's located in East Texas, about halfway between Dallas and Shreveport, Louisiana. Lucy was the middle child of RDB and Nora Wilson's five children. And she was at least a third generation Texan because both her parents and three of her grandparents were Texas natives themselves. And Lucy would go on to have children born in Texas. So lots of Texas roots here. She grew up on the family farm and after graduating from Big Sandy High School, she headed for the big city where she trained as a nurse at Dallas's Parkland Hospital. She graduated as a nurse in 1939, and she even worked in that hospital's emergency room for a while. All in all, she worked as a civilian nurse for about a year and a half until she joined the Army Nurses Corps in December 1940. And right away, she was sent directly to Beaumont General Hospital in Fort Bliss, which is near El Paso, Texas. Now, if you know Southwestern U.S. geography, you'll know that El Paso, Texas is on the border with Southern New Mexico and also with Mexico, but that's not part of the story. In January 1941, so about the same time that Lucy arrived at Fort Bliss, New Mexico's 200th Coast Artillery National Guard unit was called into active federal service and all of its men were moved to Fort Bliss. You can probably guess where I'm going with this, because among them was a 24-year-old lieutenant named Daniel, Dan, Jopling. And he was captivated by young Nurse Wilson, who one source described as pert and blue-eyed. Dan Jopling was about eight months older than Lucy. He was born in Colorado, but raised in New Mexico, and he joined the 200th Coast Artillery after completing two years of college. The couple would have had a good seven months to get to know each other at Fort Bliss before Dan and the 200th were sent to the Philippines in August 1941. By the way, Jack and Robert Aldrich were also in the 200th Coast Artillery. I covered their story in episode 29, and it is a beautiful episode about the bonds of brothers, not just in arms, but by blood. 
Well, the 200th arrived in the Philippines in September and were assigned to Fort Stotzenberg, which is about 100 miles or 165 kilometers north of Manila. About six weeks after their arrival, so we're in late 1941 now, some nurses arrived from the States. And according to author and historian Dorothy Cave, who literally wrote the history of the 200th Coast Artillery, Dan heard one of the nurses mention Lucy's name, and he inquired further. Yes, Lucy Wilson was with them. Dan sped to Fort McKinley. Fort McKinley was an American base in Manila. Thus, Lucy would have been assigned to the military hospital in Manila. And despite being stationed about 100 miles apart, the couple continued their relationship. And apparently, Dan proposed to Lucy several times. Lucy's response to his first proposal? Are you nuts? Not on this forsaken island. But eventually, Dan's repeated proposals led to an engagement. They would set their wedding date as April 9th, 1942. As it turned out, that would be a date neither of them would ever forget. Stationed in Manila, Lucy Wilson wouldn't have seen the first airplanes that attacked the Philippines on the afternoon of December 8, 1941. But Dan saw them. Actually, he not only saw them, he heard them. He felt their bombs and strafing, and he was part of the American ground attempts to fight off those Japanese bombers and the fighter planes attacking Clark Field and Fort Stotzenberg, again where Dan was stationed. As soon as the attacks ended, he sent a telegram to Manila. Author Dorothy Cave wrote, At Fort McKinley, before communications completely broke down, someone handed Lucy Wilson a telegram. Was she all right? Dan Joplin wanting to know. She had no way to answer. Then the wounded began to arrive. Lucy herself described those arrivals and the following scenes that she would never forget. We worked around the clock. It was pure hell, seeing all those patients with limbs and parts of bodies missing and all sorts of hideous wounds, having to wait in line to get into surgery. Although they had spent their times in the Philippines thus far separated by miles, the war now divided them in a whole new way. As communication lines broke down, neither had much knowledge of where the other was or what they were doing. But despite their different tasks, they both ended up on Bataan Peninsula with the majority of U.S. and Filipino forces on Luzon, which is the Philippines' largest island. Lucy was ordered to evacuate Manila on Christmas Eve, 1941, and she recalled, A phone call alerted us to be ready to retreat and take only what we could carry in our hands. In a little while, a bus came for us. All day, we jumped into muddy ditches when Jap planes flew over. We got to LeMay on Bataan's eastern coast about midnight, and someone opened a can of beans. It was the best Christmas dinner I ever had. Once on Bataan, Lucy was stationed at Field Hospital Number 2, where she was an operating room nurse. I've described this hospital a few times in previous episodes, but the main thing to know about this hospital is that it didn't have buildings. All the wards were open air, with a jungle canopy for their roofs and maybe some woven mats for walls or partitions. One day in late January 1942, Lucy was getting off nursing duty when an officer stopped her and asked, Do you know a Lieutenant Jopling? When she nodded that yes, she did know a Lieutenant Jopling, the officer then asked, Would you like to see him? You bet! came Lucy's enthusiastic answer. 
For the past month to six weeks, she hadn't known where her fiancé was, or even if he was still alive. Lucy followed the officer to a ward, which was basically cots spread out on the jungle floor, and in one of those beds lay Dan. She explained, Dan had dengue fever, breakbone fever, we called it. He was there a week, and when I got off work, we'd sit on the beach and talk and watch the Japanese bomb and burn Manila. Dengue fever is a mosquito-borne tropical disease that causes joint and muscle pain, headaches, vomiting, and skin rashes. It was one of the many common tropical diseases that the patients jamming the field hospitals were suffering from. And it wasn't just the patients who were sick. The doctors and nurses were sick as well. However, these healthcare providers usually didn't have the desire or the ability to stop working because there were so many wounded and sick men to care for in the hospital. Historian Elizabeth Norman, in her book, We Band of Angels, which is about the nurses on Bataan, described nurses setting up their sick beds in hospital wards so that they could continue overseeing the care of their patients. And surgeons sick with malaria, shaking with the chills as they held scalpels ready to make incisions. Norman wrote, Lucy Wilson, an operating nurse, dizzy and weak with the disease, found a way to wedge an arm in a space near her operating table to steady herself during surgery. In wartime situations, you must make do with whatever works best. But can you imagine being cared for, especially in the operating room, by someone so sick he struggles holding the scalpel steady? Just horrific circumstances. Lucy and the other nurses wore khaki mechanics coveralls instead of the usual white nurses' uniforms so that they could be somewhat camouflaged as they went about their duties. These coveralls were sized for men, and the seat of Lucy's hung down to her knees, and she often tripped over them as she worked. She also described, We saw the bombs dropping, and from the explosions, we could estimate when the next load of patients would arrive. Those loads of patients became more frequent as the war headed into early April 1942, and the Japanese, who were newly reinforced with supplies and fresh troops, began their final baton offensive. Within days, the American lines were breaking, and men were flooding the hospital. Author Dorothy Cave wrote, Lucy Wilson worked almost without rest on the surgical team. Bombs hit about them continually, and shells exploded. With each detonation, the nights wavered and the makeshift wall of vines in Nipa shook. Demoralized men streamed past. The lines had broken, they reported. Only God knew what was happening or where Dan might be. Lucy concentrated on the wounded and dying men. She willed her numb body to keep going and her numb mind not to speculate. Lucy was assisting in the operating room on the afternoon of April 7th when orders came for all nurses to leave the hospital for evacuation to Corregidor Island, which was about two miles offshore from Bataan Peninsula. Lucy recalled, By the time we received the word, took off our gloves and gowns in the middle of operations and walked down there, most of the nurses were already gone. Walking out in the middle of an operation with hundreds lined up under the trees, waiting for surgery was devastating to me. This I have to live with for the rest of my life. The next day was supposed to have been her wedding day, but when that day dawned, she would be walking toward the town of Marivellis, which is located on Bataan's southern tip, and away from Dan, wherever he might be, rather than down an aisle towards him. 
You see, her evacuation from Bataan didn't go quite as planned. Lucy explained, By the time I got my surgical gown and gloves off and got to the nurses' unit, they'd all been sent out but two. Most of the vehicles were gone, so they put us on a dilapidated garbage van. We were supposed to be at Marivol's by midnight to catch a boat for Corregidor. But instead of being at Maravellas at midnight, Lucy's garbage truck was stopped in heavy traffic because an explosion at an ammunition dump halted all movement south. By the time the traffic started moving, midnight had come and gone, and the boat didn't wait. Then the garbage truck died, and her supposed-to-be wedding day dawned with her still several miles from Maravellas. Lucy recalled, So we hiked to the shore to wait for a boat, or the Japs, and I wondered if Dan was dead or alive. With Lucy on the Baton shore was Clara Beckford, also a hospital number two nurse, whose story I covered in episode 25. I explain more details about these nurses' escape to Corregidor, so if you're interested, I highly recommend that episode. Lucy, Clara, and their fellow hospital number two nurses did eventually arrive on Corregidor, where they went straight to work in the Melinda Tunnels underground 1,000-bed hospital. And I cover details about life in that tunnel hospital in episode 40 about Rosemary Hogan. For the next month, Lucy spent her days and nights underground, attending the men who had been wounded above ground in the relentless onslaught of artillery and air bombing from Japanese forces now occupying Bataan. Then, on May 3rd, she was told to be ready to leave Corregidor that night. Initially, she wasn't sure she wanted to go, and she shared her feelings with a friend. I told him I wasn't going, that I was tired of retreating, but he said, get out and go on and that I couldn't help Dan by staying, and he'd want me out. Well, that convinced her. And by 7.30 that night, Lucy was one of 12 nurses, 12 officers, and a civilian in a small boat bobbing their way under cover of darkness toward the empty blackness of Manila Harbor, where an American submarine, unseen by Japanese forces, was on the surface and waiting for her and the others to board. That sub was called the USS Spearfish, and it was the last of eight round-trip submarine cruises from Australia to Corregidor during the initial months of the war. You see, as Japanese ground forces invaded the Philippine Islands in December 1941, Japanese naval forces set up a blockade around the islands to prevent American and other allied forces bringing ships and other aid to the beleaguered forces in the Philippines. So for months, these eight submarine trips had delivered 53 tons of food, as well as some weapons, ammunition, and other equipment. And the underwater crafts left the islands with a total of 185 people, the Philippines treasury, and some vital army records. On both sides of the coin, the impact of the trips was almost negligible, considering the number of servicemen in the Philippines needing food and or evacuation. Still, for people like Lucy Wilson, the risky missions meant everything. I found the Spearfish's log, which records every movement, every action, everything that the sub saw, and the date and time that the submarine saw those things. On May 3rd, 1942, the USS Spearfish official log recorded. 2035. Received following. 27 passengers with baggage, files, mails, and miscellaneous gear. 
That entry is followed by a list of names, including Lucy Wilson's. By the way, two of them were stowaway servicemen who would help the authorized passengers board the submarine and then snuck in, and they weren't discovered until it was too late to return them to Corregidor. Also, among the files, mails, and miscellaneous gear was the last known photograph of the finance department, which I discussed in the last episode, that's number 41. Anyway, Manila Bay crawled with Japanese ships. Warships. Warships that would attack, on sight, any American submarine. So, the USS Spearfish waited on the water's surface, unmoving, and charging its batteries for more than an hour as the active shelling and bombardment of Corregidor played out above water. Inside the submarine, however, the crew was busy welcoming the new passengers on board. Captain Earl Sackett, who was one of the Corregidor evacuees with Lucy, wrote, Within the throbbing still hull of the submarine, sympathetic submarine crew members served up such food as the hungry refugees had not seen for months. Bunks were already at a premium, but the choicest ones were unselfishly given up to the passengers, with all hands put on a strict schedule for sleeping at different times during the day and night. I've mentioned Captain Sackett several times throughout various podcast episodes. He was the captain of the USS Canopus, which was a submarine tender that was caught in the Philippines at the beginning of the war. It was also the ship my great-grandfather Alma Salm was serving on when the war broke out. Shortly after returning home from the Philippines, Sackett wrote a memoir of his time there during the early part of the war. And if I'm understanding correctly, he shared it as best he could with the families of the men under his command. Most of them, if still alive, were prisoners of war by the time their families saw that memoir. I've used that memoir in at least six previous episodes to tell the stories of the men who were under Sackett's command. But the trip on the USS Spearfish wasn't Sackett's first submarine ride. Actually, he had graduated from submarine school and served on three submarines during the 1920s, even commanding one of them. A career naval man, Earl Sackett's adult life was spent mainly at sea, but his younger self couldn't have been farther from the ocean. Born in Nebraska in March 1897, Earl was the third of Samuel and Minnie Sackett's four children. The family would then go on to live in Wisconsin, Idaho, and possibly Oregon by the time 18-year-old Earl joined the U.S. Navy in 1915, continuing the military legacy of his Sackett family. His grandfather fought in the Civil War, and his great-great-great-grandfather served in the American Revolution. After serving a year in the Navy, Earl went to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. He graduated from there as an ensign and spent the early 1920s patrolling the oceans. And despite his near-constant movement, Earl found time to marry, and in August 1922, his only child, a daughter, was born in Norfolk, Virginia. In the mid-20s, he went to submarine school, then served on those three subs, and then he spent two years as a Naval Academy instructor. He went on to receive a master's in mechanical engineering in 1934, and then spent the remainder of the 30s moving up the naval ranks while serving aboard various ships and at Navy bases. Then, in February 1940, just a month shy of his 44th birthday, 
Captain Earl L. Sackett assumed command of the USS Canopus. The USS Canopus was a submarine tender, so it carried food, fuel, torpedoes, supplies, relief crews, and more for U.S. submarines. The ships sailed mainly between the Philippines and China, attending to the U.S. submarines that patrolled those waters. On December 8, 1941, while the Japanese planes were bombing Dan Jopling up at Clark Field, Captain Sackett and the Canopus were anchored in Manila Bay. The old ship had just finished a massive overhaul and it got more armor and better anti-aircraft guns and other things. Once the Japanese started bombing Manila, Sackett ordered his crew to paint the ship's exposed parts the same color as the Manila dock, and they also draped cargo nets on anything of the ship's exterior that looked military in nature, so guns, radar, stuff like that. The camouflage seemed to work, and the Canopus wasn't a high-priority Japanese target. Until, that is, she moved to Maravellas Harbor on Bataan Peninsula's southern tip. On December 29th, an armor-piercing missile hit the Canopus. It shot all the way through the decks, and it damaged the engine room. Escaping steam there killed and wounded several of Sackett's crew members. And then a week later, Japanese planes attacked it again, leaving the ship in pretty bad condition. But Captain Sackett took drastic measures to ensure his ship and crew were no longer targets. In his own words, It was useless to pretend any longer that camouflage would hide the ship from enemy planes, but at least we could make them think that what was left was useless. The next morning when a Japanese scouting plane came over, his pictures showed what looked like an abandoned hulk, listed over on her side with cargo booms askew and large blackened areas around the bomb holes from which wisps of smoke floated up for two or three days. What he did not know was that the smoke came from oily rags and strategically placed smudge pots that every night the abandoned Hulk hummed with activity, forging new weapons for the belligerent forces of Bataan. Japanese planes left the Canopus alone. And for the next three months, Sackett and the Canopus crew supported the Americans defending Bataan. It was leadership that would earn Captain Sackett a Navy Cross. That's the U.S. Navy's second highest military decoration. But, as we know, Bataan would fall, and in the early hours of April 9, 1942, Captain Sackett ordered the Canopus to be backed into deep water. He described, There she was, laid to her final rest by the hands of the sailors she had served so faithfully. Sackett and the Canopus crew, at the last moment, escaped to Kurgadar Island and joined the 4th Marines to defend the island's beaches, until Sackett was chosen to leave the island. Just before 10 p.m. on May 3, 1942, as the USS Spearfish lay motionless in Manila waters, Corregidor ammunition dump exploded, casting light into the dark bay, and the Spearfish submarine, still on the surface, moved away from the light to avoid being seen. It cruised along the surface for about half an hour until the crew spotted a Japanese destroyer. Immediately, the submarine submerged, it then silently moved at five knots, which is roughly five and a half miles per hour, through Manila waters, all the while listening for the destroyer they were trying to evade. The submarine remained underwater for the next 20 hours and 47 minutes as the pilots maneuvered the submarine through the naval blockade. And the submarine log records 
all the details of movement, course changes, speed changes, and observation during that time, as the small craft threaded its way through minefields and enemy vessels. Historian Elizabeth Norman wrote, As the spearfish slowly and carefully picked its way through the minefields around Corregidor and slipped quietly under the Japanese patrols, the crew warned the passengers to keep still. If the enemy attacked and dropped depth charges, they said, the passengers were to cover their heads with pillows and blankets and pray. For many long, hot, malodorous hours, the twelve nurses sat silently and anxiously, waiting for the danger to pass and breathing the stale air. Some thought their rescue ship a shoebox, others imagined it a sardine can. Lucy Wilson herself said that the tight quarters, at sea, underwater, took some getting used to. Still, she conceded, Having worked for 48 hours straight and having only eaten wormy rice, that submarine to me was heaven. Two days after their escape, Corregidor Island and all the rest of the Philippines surrendered to Japanese forces. Sackett recorded, When news of the fall of Corregidor came to the radio, faces were grim and grief-stricken. We had hoped that there might be time for more submarines to be sent in and more of our shipmates rescued. Now that the last hope for our friends were gone, they had joined the missing in action roll call. Despite having safely fled Manila Bay by this time, the USS Spearfish remained in enemy waters. Danger was by no means past. The gauntlet of Japanese patrolled sea lanes still had to be run, and for weeks the only side of the sun would be through a periscope. But the passengers had placed their destinies in competent hands, and they had no need to worry over such trifles. The Japanese controlled all but a few small Philippine islands, and their ships patrolled the waters in and around the Philippines and surrounding nations. For the next few days, the submarine continued its slow progress past the southern Philippine islands, remaining submerged during the day and often surfacing during the night. At 12.43 a.m. on May 6, the submarine spotted two Japanese destroyers, which almost immediately altered course and sailed straight for the spearfish. The submarine dove underwater and didn't resurface until 7.13 the next night. But the anxiety wasn't over. Not even an hour later, the lookout spotted a submarine, only 600 yards away. Fearing they'd been spotted by an enemy sub, the spearfish immediately dove. Fear, worry, held breath, until, that is, word came that it was a false alarm. Not a submarine, probably cloudy water or a rock. All was clear. Eight days after leaving Corregidor, the spearfish was finally able to transmit a message to Navy Command. The passengers had escaped Corregidor, and all were safe. The submarine was then able to increase speed slightly as it continued sailing farther south. But it wasn't until day 12 when they'd passed through Lombok Strait, which cuts through Indonesia to connect the Bali Sea with the Indian Ocean, that they were out of the most dangerous waters and the sub could increase speed to 15 knots, which is about 15 miles per hour. And for the next five days, their cruise was event-free. Inside the sub, everything was done in shifts, eating, sleeping, everything. Eight of the nurses were assigned to four bunks, which they slept in during shifts. The women began wearing men's undershirts and cut-off dungarees, which are sailors' uniforms similar in look to overalls because it was hot and sweaty inside that boat. 
Thankfully, the sub could often surface during the nights, which allowed for fresh air to fill the holds. Now, you might already know this, but a toilet on a submarine is called the head. And the nurses had trouble using the head because operating it involved opening and or closing seven different valves in a correct order. And if a step was missed, the results was getting showered with the toilet's contents. The women eventually talked a mess boy into operating the head for them. Instead of just sitting around and enjoying the cruise, the nurses offered their help. Historian Elizabeth Norman wrote, As the ship cruised south toward Australia, the nurses, somewhat rested now, offered the spearfish crew their labor, and they worked in the galley and mess, cooking, washing dishes, and helping serve the meals. Their willingness to pitch in made them popular with the crew, and soon their section of the ship seemed to draw a large number of visitors. The submariners weren't used to women on board their craft, but the women's presence made the men aware of personal appearance and hygiene on this voyage. From what I understand, those two things could go by the wayside during a submarine voyage. One crew member even wrote a poem entitled, What Women Can Do to a Submarine Crew. It begins, Beyond a doubt, you will surely note, if you walk about, a change in the boat. He then talks about how various crewmen have altered their habits, such as drinking tea, actually washing their clothes, not smoking cigarettes. Although, I wonder if cigarettes were even allowed in a submarine? I, I hope not. And even noting that one crew member had stopped picking his nose. The poem concluded, I'm trying to say in all these verses, we brought aboard a flock of pretty nurses on that eventful day in May when we were out Corregidor Way. After 17 days on board the submarine, Lucy Wilson, Captain Sackett, and the rest of the Spearfish passengers reached the safety of Australia's Fremantle Harbor, which is on the southern part of Australia's western coast. They arrived at 7.29 a.m. on May 20th. The two stowaways were handed over to proper authorities, while the other 25 passengers continued their journey home. Lucy recalled, I was 17 days underwater then across Australia on a troop train. Along the way, Aborigines cooked mutton stew for us in 50-gallon oil drums. We sailed from Melbourne to New York, and the army said we'd never have to go overseas again. In Melbourne, which is on the southern part of Australia's eastern coast, Lucy and her fellow nurses boarded the transport ship USS West Point, which sailed across the southern Pacific, then up the western coast of South America, through the Panama Canal and the Caribbean, and then north to New York, where it docked on July 2nd, nearly two months to the day of Lucy having escaped Corregidor Island. The Navy had informed the media of the ship's anticipated arrival and of the precious heroic cargo, i.e. baton nurses, and the docking was broadcast live on the radio across the United States. Back home in Big Sandy, Texas, neighbors walked a mile to Lucy's family's home to share the good news of her homecoming. But before Lucy could go home to Texas, she first went to Washington, D.C., where she and the other escaped nurses, including Eunice Hatchett from episode 15, were decorated for their bravery under fire in the Philippines. When she finally arrived home in Big Sandy later that month, she was greeted by a crowd of 1,000 people 
welcoming her home and paying tribute to her heroism on Bataan. While home on leave, Lucy wrote a letter to Dan Jopling's mother, telling her that Dan was safe and well when Lucy left Bataan. The 200th Coast Artillery certainly made a name for itself. I am proud to have met many of the boys, especially Danny. Of course, the last time Lucy had seen Dan was well before Lucy was evacuated to Corregidor and Bataan had fallen to the Japanese. By the time Lucy wrote Dan's mother, Dan had endured the Bataan Death March, the horrors of Camp O'Donnell, and was at Cabanatuan POW camp in central Luzon. How much of this Lucy would have known? Well, probably little, because I don't believe the servicemen and women on Corregidor Island knew about the war crimes associated with the Bataan Death March at the time that Lucy escaped. And even though she wrote this seemingly good account of Dan, Lucy was worried about him, wondering how he was doing and where he was. These worries followed her as she took up her new appointment as assistant chief nurse at Shepherd Field Hospital in Wichita Falls, Texas. And eventually, those concerns became large enough that she wanted to get back to the Pacific and find Dan. So she enrolled in flight nurse training. World War II saw rapid expansion of the U.S. Army Air Force, its planes, and its transportation routes. Soon after the war's beginning, leaders realized it would be possible for planes to fly sick and wounded men from the front lines back to military hospitals, on the same planes used to bring men and supplies to the front. But the United States Army Air Force wasn't prepared to staff these kind of operations, so they started rush training programs. One history of flight nurses states, To prepare for any emergency, flight nurses learned crash procedures, received survival training, and studied the effects of high altitude on various types of patients. In addition, flight nurses had to be in top physical condition to care for patients during these rigorous flights. A flight nurse was part of a unit called an Air Evacuation Transport Squadron. These flights included the airplane's crew, flight nurses, and surgical technicians. No doctors accompanied the nurses and technicians on the flights. Thus, the nurses, who outranked the technicians, were the first line of medical care from the front lines to the hospital. And they were trained to start IVs and oxygen, which were tasks nurses at the time typically didn't do. A plane would land at an airfield near the front lines. The nurses, crew, and technicians would load the sick and wounded men, and then they'd get back into the air. And yes, sometimes the nurses were loading patients while under enemy fire. Flight nurse positions were volunteer positions, as in the Army Nurse Corps did not order nurses to be part of the squadrons. This was mainly because these positions were very dangerous. The planes themselves could not have Red Cross markings on them because they carried military supplies, so the flights were vulnerable to enemy attacks. These flight nurses were literally in the line of fire. Field nurses, I've always thought, were fairly vulnerable, but field hospitals are usually in the rear, well behind the front lines. The flight nurses were flying into the front lines in the very planes that the enemy was shooting at and trying to bring down. During World War II, about 500 nurses served in the air evacuation transport squadrons worldwide. 
They evacuated nearly 1.2 million patients and had only 46 patients die en route to the hospitals, which is just an amazing feat in and of itself. A few nurses did die in a line of service, and after one plane crashed in Europe, the flight nurses had to walk across Albania to get to safety. So, wanting to get back to the Pacific, Lucy volunteered as a flight nurse. After undergoing training, she started her year in the position in January 1944. Here's her account of that experience. I landed first in New Caledonia. When we heard of any place with a landing strip, I hit it. Always wanted to get back and find Dan. By the way, New Caledonia is a small island off Australia's northwestern coast, and it became the U.S. Pacific headquarters in 1942. It was a very important Allied base during the war. Okay, back to Lucy. Most of the time we were island hopping on C-47s up to the front lines with ammunition and food. Oh, sorry, real quick. C-47s were transport planes that were extensively used during World War II to transport troops, cargo, paratroopers, and injured men. If you've seen Band of Brothers, think of the planes that Easy Company jumps out of when they're going into Normandy. For the air evacuation transport, the planes were fitted with bunks or cots or similar so that the patients could lay in them while being transported. Sometimes we'd have to circle until the firing stopped and we'd land and load the injured quickly. But some of the soldiers would come up and touch our arms. They just wanted to touch an American woman. If we didn't give them anything but courage, we were the symbol of what they were fighting for. Chest or skull injuries affect breathing, so we'd ask the pilots to fly low, sometimes nearly skim the ocean so they could breathe. We tried to take food for them. They never got much food in the Pacific. It was all going to the European theater. We were the first nurses into Guadalcanal. We flew the injured back to hospitals on islands behind us. Finally, we got to Leyte Island in the Philippines and then Luzon. It was the highlight of my life. When her one-year assignment as a flight nurse was up, she begged to stay. She still hadn't found Dan, and the Army did allow her to remain on duty in the Pacific. Thus, in January 1945, she again found herself on Luzon Island in the Philippines, where she had served on Bataan. She said, After watching brave men suffer and die on Bataan and Corregidor because of inadequate medical facilities, it gave me the greatest satisfaction to realize that these men were being flown to the finest hospital care within a few hours. On Bataan, we had about 80 nurses to care for 7,000 patients and working on a 24-hour schedule. Now, the same number of nurses will be responsible for about 1,500 persons and hospital conditions will be much better. I wanted to get back there to talk to those we had to leave behind that's one desire you'll find common among all those who got out. You can't work with people, starve with them, fight alongside them as we did in Bataan without gaining great admiration for them. But although she saw plenty of Bataan men who were now freed POWs and including men Dan had served with in the 200th Coast Artillery, Lucy didn't cross paths with Dan himself. She recalled, I helped fly out some ex-POWs and some were from the 200. I kept asking them all, where's Dan? Where's Dan? And she eventually got a response. Dead on the Orioka Maru. But at first, she refused to believe that answer. 
and kept on asking anyone she could. She continued hearing that same answer though. Dan had died on the Oroko Maru. And eventually, she accepted that reality. I knew if Dan was alive, I would have known it by then. So I said, okay, send me back to the States. I knew Dan was dead. Mere weeks before Lucy's air evacuation transport squadron landed on Luzon Island, Dan Jopling was loaded onto a Japanese transport ship with 1,620 other POWs. The ship was called the Oroko Maru, and it was bound for Japan. If you've listened to many of the Left Behind episodes, you've likely heard me talk about the Oroko Maru. At least nine of the POWs I spotlighted so far were part of this disastrous trip. And every time I write about it, I try to include some of the POW's personal experiences as far as I can find them. So here's a bit about Dan's experience on that ship. First off, he had been at the Kobanatuan POW camp since June 1942. Then he and three quarters of the Kobanatuan POWs were transferred from the camp to Manila in October 1944. Shortly before leaving the camp, he wrote to his mother. Darling mom, I am well and waiting for the day when we will be together again. I have received your letters and was very glad to hear everyone is well. Tell all my relatives I am fine, especially my darling sister. I love you and think of you. Love all, Dan. After waiting several weeks in Manila, Dan and the other POWs were loaded into the cargo holds of the Oroko Maru on December 12, 1944. He said that the ceiling in the hold was so low we could only stand in a half-crouching position. The men were so crammed into the hold that they couldn't sit, and soon the oxygen began to run out. Men began to attack their friends, cutting their throats and drinking their blood and their own urine. In a few minutes, the guards began firing into the holds, and the screams of the mad and the dying were horrible. The day after the unmarked ship left Manila, it was attacked by U.S. dive bombers, which incapacitated the ship. Still, as the bombers attacked, the men in the holds nearly cheered. There was not one man who did not feel pride in their accuracy, and among the group, one could hear, Come on, Yanks! The attack continued the next day, and the ship soon caught fire. The passengers and crew were evacuated. Only then did the Japanese guards allow the POWs to attempt escaping the inferno. The ship was already burning and sinking rapidly before we could come out of the holds and swim ashore. The Jap guards opened heavy fire as men began climbing the ladders and continued the fire as they dived into the water. As it was a considerable distance to the shore, many of us who were able made trips to and from the ship bringing in men who could not swim or were too weak to do so. When we were finally ashore, we marched into Olongapo and crowded onto a wire-enclosed tennis court. The men waited at Olongapo, a former U.S. Navy yard, for several days before they were taken by train to another part of Luzon Island where they boarded two different transport ships. Dan was put on the Enora Maru, and he recalled that 16 men died in his part of that ship as it sailed toward Taiwan. Constantly came the cries of men for water. Many were dying each day, 
and as the jabs had nothing to weigh the bodies with, they refused to lower them over the side for fear they would float and submarines could trace our course. The emaciated bodies were stacked about us like corkwood. The Honora Maru was attacked by American planes in Taiwan, and several hundred POWs were killed. The survivors, including Dan Jopling, were transferred to yet a third ship, which arrived in Moji, Japan on January 30, 1945. Only 550 of the original 1,620 men were still alive. It was midwinter and the men were sick and freezing, wearing the rags and loincloths they'd had in the Philippines. More than 150 Oroko Maru survivors would die over the next several weeks and months. So, when the ex-POWs in the Philippines told Lucy that Dan was dead, well, they were probably betting on odds that were definitely against Dan's survival. He first went to a POW camp near Fukuoka, Japan, and then, in April 1945, he was transferred to the Jinsen POW camp in Korea with many other Oroko Maru survivors. That camp was liberated in September 1945, and among the freed POWs was Lieutenant Daniel Jopling. Dan had survived the unthinkable, and he was sent back to Manila in October 1945 and then to Bruns Hospital in Santa Fe, New Mexico for recuperation. Meanwhile, for at least six months, Lucy Wilson thought her fiancé was dead. She was living in or visiting Washington, D.C. when she received a letter from her mother. As she opened the letter, a cablegram from Manila fell out. It was signed, With love from Dan. Startled and confused, Lucy dialed her mother. Mama, where did this come from? I don't know, but two dozen roses just arrived. Lucy caught the next flight home to Big Sandy, Texas, where she found more roses waiting for her. But Dan's sudden resurrection, at least in her mind, and appearance left Lucy questioning everything. They'd been apart for nearly four years, four years that had been a lifetime in which they'd each endured unthinkable and even unspeakable trials. They were different people, and Lucy, who had spent many long months mourning Dan's death and thinking herself unengaged, found herself wondering whether marrying him was the right choice. I called my chief nurse and I said, Sankey, what am I going to do? He's chained, and I've chained, and I can't marry him. I can't tell him on the phone. She said, Lucy, go and see him and she went with me to Santa Fe. They had long, dark wards in Bruns Hospital, and Dan was coming in one end and I in the other, and I knew if I didn't tell him that minute, I wouldn't have the nerve. So I said, there in front of everybody, Dan, I can't marry you. So not the movie ending, Homecoming, I suspect Dan Jopling had been expected. And to be honest, not what I was expecting either, but this is a true story and not a fictionalized World War II romance. Historian Dorothy Cave picked up the story from there. For the next few days, Lucy vacillated and returned home still undecided. But the stubbornness that had brought Dan Jopling home propelled him to Big Sandy that weekend. Three days later, they headed back for Santa Fe, man and wife. That marriage happened on December 5, 1945. Lucy received her Army discharge papers that same day. Now, before we get into Dan and Lucy's happily ever after, I want to check in on Captain Earl Sackett's wartime activities a little bit. 
After coming home from Australia, Captain Sackett spent the rest of World War II commanding the Submarine Repair Facility in San Diego and then on the Fleet Admiral Chester A. Nimitz staff in Hawaii. An almost 50-year-old Rear Admiral Earl J. Sackett retired from active duty in January 1947. He spent his retirement years in San Diego, California, where he died on October 7, 1970. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery, just outside of Washington, D.C. And here's something random, but interesting, well, at least to me. Earl Sackett was the last captain that Alma Sam, my great-grandfather, served under before being captured by the Japanese. Sackett's parents, Samuel and Minnie Sackett, are buried in a cemetery near Portland, Oregon. My father, who is Alma Sam's grandson, lives just a few blocks down the street from that cemetery, literally within like half a mile of each other. And on a visit home during the pandemic, I dragged all three of my siblings to that cemetery to search for their graves. My brother, to my chagrin, is the one who found it. Such a small world. Well, back to Dan and Lucy. Dan remained in the army after World War II, and he and Lucy spent time at stations in California and in Texas. By 1950, they had two children, and then a third was born in 1957. At least from what I've discovered, there could have been more children that I haven't found records for. Dan retired from the U.S. Army in 1961 as a lieutenant colonel, and the family settled in the San Antonio, Texas area. He then spent eight years working for the Red Cross. He died in July 1985. Lucy remained in the San Antonio, Texas area. In 1991, she published a memoir of her wartime experiences, especially as a flight nurse, titled Warrior in White. She enjoyed speaking to veterans groups, feeling a kinship with them because only those who have served can understand that war is hell. I don't care which it is, where it is. Still, Lucy doesn't seem to have regretted her wartime choices. She told a crowd at an ex-POW recognition ceremony. I've had so many people ask me, would you do it again? You bet I'd do it again. 84-year-old Lucy Wilson Jopling, this courageous woman who continually put herself in the line of fire to ensure American servicemen had the best chance of survival, passed away on Christmas Day in 2000. In the end, she found eternal rest with Dan at Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery. Just two days after Lucy Wilson escaped Corregidor on the USS Spearfish, Japanese forces landed on the island. Waiting on the beaches to meet those landing parties were the U.S. Marines, already battered and bruised, but ready to give the fight of their lives. So be sure to hit the follow button because there will be more on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Lucy Wilson, Dan Jopling, and Earl Sackett's stories on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are all in the show description. If you'd like to know more about Lucy Wilson's wartime experiences, I suggest her memoir, Warrior in White, 
or author Dorothy Kay's book, Beyond Courage, One Regiment Against Japan, about the 200th Coast Artillery during World War II. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Robin Sutherland, Brooke Davis, Valerie Skatina, Tyler Harmon, Mike Davis, and Jake Herrenberg. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And remember to subscribe to Left Behind because you won't want to miss next time's Battle for Corregidor Island. Mm-hmm.